Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet and learn how their failures became a launchpad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All-American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today, I bring you Jeff Eggers. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff. And if you're like me, you want to get the cliff notes, or I guess these days they call them the spark notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests, like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27, or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45, or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85, plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select View full description. There you'll see the link to download all the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now for today's guest. Jeff is the executive director of the Stanley McChrystal Leadership Institute, where he focuses on organizational performance and leadership. Jeff was a special assistant to the president for national security affairs and worked at the White House from 2010 to 2015. He retired from the U.S. Navy in 2013 after serving over 20 years as a combat veteran Navy SEAL. Jeff received a Master of Arts from Oxford University and a Bachelor of Science from the United States Naval Academy. And along with former General Stanley McChrystal and Jay Mangone, Jeff co-wrote the new book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, which we'll talk about here today. And as always, for the listener, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode or if you hear something you like but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So let's, let's just start with this, Jeff. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and kind of the 30,000-foot view of how you got from, from there to where you're at now? Yeah, sure. It, it's a... Um it's a it's a familiar story to those of us that that you know either uh, grew up in the military or had the military around us because I was the son of an Air Force officer uh, and the son um, of, of a, a teacher, really a history teacher, and we were moving around a lot with my father in the Air Force, uh, born in Ohio. Uh, he was Wright Patterson, but he settled in New Hampshire. Uh, his last assignment in the Air Force was on the seacoast side of New Hampshire. And he stopped there 
interestingly enough, because he decided to prioritize uh, my mom's uh, education and career and uh, and didn't want to climb the the military professional ladder. And so I actually had um, a, a relatively stable childhood childhood growing up in New Hampshire through most of, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the school age years, which is unusual for a military brat to have that kind of stability and, and to be able to grow up in one spot. So usually I say New Hampshire is where I grew up and it was home because I had that, um, that, that fortunate twist where my dad decided to, to grow some roots. And then it was off to the Naval Academy, um, after school, uh, off to, to grad school. After that, I had a great opportunity to um, take advantage of a, of a grad school opportunity and then into training in the Navy. And, you know, it was a, it was a relatively straightforward uh, operational Navy career um, to the extent there is, is such a thing for about the first 15 years. And then I got, uh, as I say, sidetracked or I took a wrong turn somewhere. And I found myself, yeah, off of the off of the beaten path, so to speak, and became uh, more and more an advisor to senior leaders. And that's what got me going into this um, uh, job as a civil servant and advisor in in the White House on the national security staff. And didn't expect to do that, didn't never really plan for that. It was one of those twists um, life throws at you and you kind of roll with. but then, then I made a break and decided to leave government um, after I'd already left the Navy and, and decided to pursue a second career, in some ways related back to the first one, of becoming a student and a researcher in leadership. Um, went off and got uh, some training and a certification in being an executive coach and so forth. And that's what brought me to my, my current role here as, as um, part of this leadership institute that I'm lucky enough to be a part of now. And it's interesting. So, Jeff, you mentioned that when when you were a kid, your father left the military to prioritize family, and and I've heard you talk about that a little bit in your life. I mean, you were in a post in the White House, and tell us, can you tell us why you left that post? Sure. I um, I there's a couple of reasons, but I was to be quite candid, I was burnt out um, in a professional sense. Uh, the the national security staff does have a well-earned reputation for uh working hard in long days and that's what people should ask of those people right because they they are in roles that matter uh managing defense and foreign policy issues uh for the the president and and their staff so that's what we should expect and and frankly it's it's a rare enough and, and great enough opportunity that when people go there, they, they typically don't mind doing that because they understand how special it is. What I did not plan for was to stay there for five years. Um, I had been at the White House previously under President Bush 2006, 2007, and frankly, I never intended to go back. And so to not only go back for a second tour, but to then stay for five years, I was quite literally burned out. And one of the ways I felt that... Um, kind of in, in the hardest hitting way was with regard to just, um, being, uh, you know, a good, a good husband, a good father and so forth. And I really wanted to, to try and reprioritize things a bit, put family first and try to find, you know, as everybody says that balance and, you know, that, that's a, that's an overused, um, cliche, but for me, it really was about trying to kind of rearrange and, and realign my priorities a bit and put family back first for a change. 
And it's interesting because you had that uh, you had that role modeled for you when you were a kid, and probably the the number one thing that my clients ask me about is and, and struggle with is balance. You know, because as everybody listening to this podcast and anybody who who is willing to invest their own money out of their own pocket to to pay me to be their coach and to help them in their lives, they are they are high performing people by nature, and they're people who want to want to reach the next level. They want to maximize their life. They want to maximize their potential. And, uh, and that can sometimes conflict with, with all the things you want to balance in life. You know, and you look at back at, at your career, uh, as a Navy SEAL, there was, you know, you probably had more of a single minded focus. And then, and then, uh, you know, you're as a, as a family man and, uh, and, and doing the work that you were doing for the government, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's more than one, more than one priority in your life at that point. Yeah, and you've, you've lived it and you've described it pretty well. And I imagine all of your listeners feel some version of this where, and I think it's getting worse in this, um, in this digital age, in this environment uh, where information is, is flowing so much more quickly and readily that there's so much greater awareness of all the things going on around us, what, what others are doing, um, that it makes it a lot harder uh, to, to see kind of the, 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 the relative beauty and just slowing down and, and trying to yeah. rebalance because everywhere you look, um, you, you have more visibility and more awareness of people doing other things. And, and that quote unquote fear of missing out factor yeah. is very real and very prevalent. And so in addition to all the usual pressures that, that uh, are somewhat timeless, I think there is something new in this um, digital environment that makes this even even more of a factor for us. Yeah, I feel like we're always comparing ourselves. It's easy to try to compare yourself to everybody else's highlight reel that you see on social media. You see them, you know, posing <clears throat> posing happily with their family. They're on in Disneyland. They're on vacation. They bought a new car. They got a new house. They got a new job. And and all you're seeing is the highlight reel. You're not seeing the reality. Uh, you're comparing their highlight reel to your to your day to day, right? That's right. That's right. It's a it's a carefully curated slice or snapshot. And as you say, you don't see all the in-between moments of reality, just like Hollywood portrays things, right? Sure. Hollywood does not, does not yield an accurate depiction. Um, and social media is much the same way. And so I think there is a, a particular need for all of us to, to, to state, step back and savor whether it's, you know, helping your kid with homework at the end of the day, or just that quiet moment at home with family um, in a very private and uh, in, in, in you know personal way. There's a there's a growing need to just find more and more ability to savor those kinds of moments. Yeah, Jeff, switching gears a bit. Tell us about your journey to becoming a SEAL. When did you start thinking that hey, maybe this is something I want to do? And tell us about that journey into to becoming a SEAL. Sure. So, like I said, I was the son of an Air Force officer, and, and as you can imagine, um, I mean, I, clearly I've 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 been a bit of a, a chip off the old block, so to speak. And one of the the many ways in which that occurred was me growing up thinking I wanted to fly. I grew up in um, literally as a little kid in the cockpits, uh, sitting in the cockpits of the aircraft. My dad. Uh, was able to fly and just became enthralled with this idea of flying and being a pilot and so forth. And so I went to the Naval Academy 100% thinking that it was a, a stepping stone to launching aircraft off the deck of a carrier. And about 
you know, one year into the Naval Academy experience, I had a rapid uh, and and sudden and dramatic change of heart where I decided that the real role of a naval officer was not to fly machinery. It was to be a leader of people. And once that hit me, I said, well, I need to go do something else because early stages of being a pilot, you are spending a lot of time by yourself flying an aircraft. And I wanted to go where I could have the most intense experience possible thinking and studying and experiencing this thing we call leadership. And at the time, I, I literally didn't know anything about special operations. I didn't grow up with that. I got a brief exposure to it and it stuck with me and it was all I needed. And that was, that was it. I, I switched gears immediately, never looked back. And I was lucky enough graduating to get, um, a spot, which was, um, um, tough to do then. And it's even tougher now it's become a competitive, uh, military occupation specialty and, and was lucky enough to get that training spot and, and, and make it through the training and so forth. So for me, it was really about wanting to find a distilled and intense leadership experience. And it, frankly, it did not disappoint in the slightest. <laughs> I've heard you say that Navy SEALs don't have extraordinary powers. It's that they come together in extraordinary teams. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think um, there's, a, there's a tendency to think about... Um, you know, these things in individualized ways and, and to then assume that all the, of the special capability that, that comes from these, these teams or these entities as coming from the, the, the sum of the parts and therefore the parts must have great capabilities. Um, and, and we, we romanticize, uh, lots of, lots of teams, whether it's in special operations or in professional sports, as, as you well know, and so forth in that way. And we miss the fact that, that the real magic is not what is w within any one person, but is what is among them all. And you really only get that, that magic by bringing this, um, this arrangement, this network of relationships together in a powerful way. You know, one of the, one of the more interesting things to hear people say after they, they spend some time with whether it's a SEAL team or a SEAL platoon or what have you, is how much it runs against their assumptions or their stereotypes of what to expect. And even when we were going through training, one of the more interesting things that the instructors or the staff there would tell visitors, and there were, there were frequently visitors that come through, is that you can't guess who's going to make it through training by looking at them either physically or looking at them on paper. It doesn't matter what their run times were or how many years of uh, sports they did in, in high school and, and so forth. Um, that that none of that is a good predictor of whether they're going to make it through and be a good teammate. That mostly at the individual level, it was not a matter of physical performance. It was mostly a matter of their cognitive uh, state of mind. And then even more important beyond the individual, it was about whether or not they could suppress the ego to the point that they could elevate the team that they were about to be a part of to be ab above any individual ego. And if, and if they had those combinations of things, then you had a good chance of making it through training. But of course, those are things that are very hard to see in someone, either in person or on paper.
So I imagine that's the, the purpose of the training is to, to bring those things to the surface. That's exactly right. And, you know, it didn't occur to me until many years later that that's in some ways the, the genius and the wisdom of this training that has evolved over uh, many decades to be what it is today. But it's, it's very effective at doing that. And for good reason, it's, it's stayed the way, um, you know, that it is and, and, and has evolved. Yeah. You know, a lot of what you just said runs contrary to some assumptions that we have, right, about about leaders and leadership. And I think in a lot of ways, you guys address this in your new book, which by the publication of this podcast will have uh, have just been released. And the title of the book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality. Talk about, I guess, explain the title of that book first. Sure. So, uh, the, the, the leaders refers quite literally to the fact that we profile these 13 historic leaders. Um, we, we take a different approach to this, this book on leadership. It's not, it's not preaching at people of how to be uh, a better leader. In fact, one of the central ideas of the book is that any such approach is doomed from the start because leadership can never be made formulaic. Leadership is intensely contextual. And so, but that's what, what we want. We want it to be formulaic. We want the blueprint, I know, right? That's I know what everybody we do. Wants. We want the prescription because it matters. Yeah. It, we know that leadership matters. We know it's important. And so because it's important, we want to make it more accessible, uh, and, and, and more easily kind of, uh, uh, applied. And so we do seek that formula, but it's elusive. Um, and yeah. so that's one of the key ideas. And, and so instead of trying to write a book that was prescriptive, instead, we start by profiling these, these 13 historic leaders. And frankly, they're from a wide ranging, uh, you know, uh, set of, of cultures and backgrounds and so forth. And frankly, some of them are not what you would hold up either as a typical leader or as a good leader. Um, some of these leaders like Abu Musab Zarqawi, the leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq or, or boss Tweed, the, the corrupt New York, um, uh, political leader, you know, are not what we would call good leaders, but we wanted to understand how it is that you can find effective leaders who are either at the fringes of what we would call, you know, being a good leader, even across the line of certain ethical or moral standards. So that's where leaders came from that part of the title. And then myth and reality really was, was a late addition because what we ended up writing about really was what we think of as the mythology of leadership, um, in that leadership isn't typically what we think it is. In other words, there's a gap between how we typically talk about leadership or how we're taught to think about leadership and how it's really experienced. And that gap is frustrating. Um, it, it means that sometimes our, our leadership is much less effective than it should be, but it's certainly less understood than we'd like it to be. And in particular, we go into three specific myths that make up this mythology, try to redefine leadership in, in a way that kind of gets around those myths, and then go into some practical implications or, or so what, um, you know, kind of um, uh, practical issues for real leaders and followers and so forth. Can you share those three myths? Yeah, of course. The first one I already mentioned, uh, which is that, uh, and it's literally called the formulaic myth, and it's the idea that leadership can't be boiled down to a prescription because it is so contextual, because it has to be responsive to its environment. And what works in one instance for one leader can't be lifted up and dropped into a different instance 
for a different leader because it may not fit that that system, that contextual um, set of, of criteria and so forth. The second is called the attribution myth, which is the idea that we typically see leadership as a process enacted by the leader, meaning we attribute what happens around us back to some sort of leadership process, i.e. a leader. And that's really the, the myth there is that there's much more that went into that outcome than what any single leader did or didn't do. Uh, namely, there's a whole bunch of, of uh, uh, issues of chance and, and serendipity, frankly, that come into this that we don't give enough credit for. But more importantly, there's a much wider cast of characters that were responsible for the, the efficacy of that system and, and its particular outcomes that we don't give credit to. Going back to your earlier point, we we tend to focus on discrete individuals because it just makes life simpler, right? If you can if you can point to a leader and say that leader did X, and then we saw a Y result, it makes for a much simpler um, universe than if we if we allocate the the outcome in, in to a system of of many different actors. Which just even though it's the reality of how the world works, it's much more. Uh, complex and hard to get our heads around. Yeah, and that's what we we want that that simple formula, the attribution or the formula, um, whether it's in sports or in business or in leadership or or anything else in life. And it's just it's just not that simple. The one story that y- you were kind enough to send me send me an advanced copy of the book, so I appreciate that. And I was reading through it, and and the one story that really stuck out to me is Winston Churchill about how early in his career he had control over some British naval forces and he oversaw. Uh, and was blamed for the loss of, I think, 44,000-some troops at, uh, uh, I may not be pronouncing it right, but Gallipoli, I think Gallipoli, it was. yeah. Gallipoli. Gallipoli, yeah, the tragedy of Gallipoli. Yeah, and he was blamed for this, and he was banished to a, a lesser post, and I think he left government soon after that, and he was just in despair. Um, and somebody actually wrote something to the effect of, uh, this would have been one of the most brilliant strokes and in, in, in plans and strategies in history had it worked. But it did, right, 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 right. And there's that's where the attribution myth comes in. Is we we tend to look at successful case studies and then try to reverse engineer them. Um, so you could you could look at Churchill and say he led the Allies to success against Hitler in World War II, and you could say, well, that's clearly a successful, effective leader. Let's reverse engineer it and see what he did to win, and then let's emulate those things, and then we will also be effective. That's generally how we think of it. And of course, we do that because World War II ended up going well, and it's a, it's a great historical debate how much of that credit Hitler deserves, and he certainly deserves some of it. But if you, if you instead picked the Gallipoli, right, an earlier military operation that went in very much the other direction, right, and it was a yeah. failure, um, and you and you reverse engine back, you find the same Churchill, and yeah. you find the same attributes, and 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 yet there those attributes led to failure, and yet later they they led to success, and we we cherry pick the ones that led to success, and we prop those up and say this is it, and clearly that's not it because there were parts of Churchill's personality that in one instance, namely his his kind of uh, let's call it audacity, his his audacious tendencies, his risk accepting tendencies, if you will. In one instance, led to failure. Yet, in a different set of circumstances, they led to success. And and breaking it down and, and reducing it to this or that attribute is where we really get off off track. 
And to give the listener a sort of a visual uh, of of a little bit about what you're talking about here is you know, I've heard you talk about you know we we have this vision of George Washington we've seen the picture many times of George Washington crossing the Delaware with his foot uh, up on the bow of the boat and they're crossing the Delaware in a rowboat and it's very grand and gallant and they're 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 uh, they're heading into battle right and he's in this 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 leadership pose. And then you've said you've done some research and it didn't look any, probably didn't look much like that. Is that right? Yeah. So that, that's a, and, and, and I have to confess, I'm not an American historian. I'm not an art historian. And I only really know about that vignette, which is how the book opens. We, we open with um, a, a vignette of the two generals, General George Washington crossing the Delaware and General um, Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And the only reason I know anything about Washington crossing the Delaware is quite literally I used to sit underneath a reproduction of that painting and <laughs> I heard tour guide. This was in the, the West Wing of the White House. And I would hear tour guides talk about the painting only because I would sit on that couch in the waiting room waiting for meetings. So I got a first rate education on that one painting. And then because I, I learned a lot about it, I started digging into it and I found out that it was it was historically flawed, like it wasn't an accurate depiction and that Washington actually crossed on a 60 foot flat bottom barge. It's a much less kind of uh, dramatic depiction of this great leader when you when you look at the more accurate depiction. But it's much more realistic um, to what real people do in real life. But that's not how we like to think of our leaders. We tend to think of them with these almost superhuman powers and abilities in some ways because we we want them to have those abilities or even we sometimes need them to particularly in times of of conflict and so forth that we there's something about followership and leadership where we we romanticize and we exaggerate our expectations of leaders and leaders frankly buy into this as well and and like the fact that that there is this tendency so they they feed it as well and the painting of washington crossing the delaware is a classic example of that and and it's it's common in in, in military history but it's it's common in, in any sort of uh historical artistic um narrative portrayal of of leadership over the years and we found it there with washington we found it with julius uh caesar and so forth so we've gotten the first two myths for the formulaic myth and the attribution myth. What's the third? Oh, so the third is probably the most um, controversial and, and, and frankly, uh, in some ways, the more interesting one. And we call it the results myth. And it is to say that typically we think of leadership as being important because it's the way that we get a group of people to achieve this outcome that's really important to us that otherwise they wouldn't have achieved, whether it's it's the military leader that gets the soldiers to charge the hill, notwithstanding the, the personal risk to themselves, th that, it's, that it's achieving some well-defined uh, objective. And, and there's some truth to that. And, and, and truth be told, that, that's important to us. Like we, we want results, we want outcomes, and for good reasons. But the reality is that you can find lots of case studies of popular, um, uh, effective leaders who weren't that good at achieving their stated results. And yet they were held up as great leaders of history all the same. And so it does beg the question, if we still turn to certain leaders and label them great or effective or, or just kind of prop them up on these, these pedestals, 
and yet their actual track record wasn't that great. What's going on there, and why do we do that? Um, the, the, the great example from the book is the case of Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee's legacy has changed a lot in recent years, but for, for much of his legacy, for much of that history, he was held up pretty much at a national level as a great leader. And there's lots of ways you know, we, can, we can go back and look at the record and see how his, his reputation was, was much stronger then than it is now. And yet the, the fact of the matter remains that he still lost the war, right? And we can, we can go yeah. back to the Civil War and debate why and how he lost. Yet he, in, in, in some pretty plain and simple ways, he, he betrayed his country, right? And, and the oath that he had taken uh, in turning down the opportunity to, to uh, lead the Union forces. But moreover, he, he, as the leading general, he lost the campaign that he was fighting to win. And so if, if leadership is about achieving those kinds of results, why did Lee still get held up as a great leader? And that's a complicated case to be sure. But what we've concluded is that one of the, the real drivers of why we turn to leaders is, yes, because uh, of their track record of, of results or what they achieve, but it's equally because of the symbols that they provide or the sense of purpose and meaning that they provide in, in our lives. And sometimes that can manifest in terms of offering a future outcome and, and quite typically a better outcome. Um, or it can be just a sense of social identity that they offer us and a sense of who we are and that sense of making us feel part of something bigger or part of something special. Um, and that's not really always about the results or the outcome. It's, it's about something much more um, kind of fundamental. And, and it's hard to put a, a word or a label on that, but it does go to this this essence of symbolism and, and looking for a sense of, of meaning or purpose or identity or so forth. So that's that's roughly what the results myth is, and and that kind of frames the the three myths that we then go on to 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 um, kind of package as what we're now calling this this mythology that we need to rethink a bit. Yeah. So, Jeff, you've you've done a great job in breaking down and dismantling our view of leadership, right? And this book is does an incredible job of this from all these amazing leaders. So what do we do? What do we do now? Who do we emulate? How do we become a better leader? So the, the, and I'll just start kind of from the, the top down, which is that first we change our mindset and our, and our framing of how we think of leadership, right? If it's not a process enacted by a leader, then what is it? And broadly speaking, we think it's more helpful to think of it as a, a system that you're part of. And that system includes not just the leader, but of course the followers, but as well, and quite often missed, is the context. And, and so that's how you reframe it. And then the question becomes, well, what do you do with that? Practically speaking, how do you convert that shift of mindset into a shift in behavior? And there's, there's lots of ways. One is to think of the leader's job as cultivating that ecosystem, right? Because if you really buy into the idea that there is this ecosystem that you're a part of, your, your, your mindset shifts to one of how do you optimize the, the, out, you know, the output of, of that thing? And, and often it's by giving the other elements of that system a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, and so forth. Mm. Um, but it's really to kind of flip it around and think of yourself as enabling the system rather than kind of directing this command chain that sits beneath you. But at a, at a deeper level, what it means is that you have to be responsive to the system. As we discussed with the formulaic myth, 
it means that the leader has to be very much in tune with the contextual requirements and signals around them and modulate their leadership style accordingly, which is to say some days your, your leadership style may need to be X, but on other days it may need to be Y. And because it's a system, you're going to have to learn how to modulate and, and be dynamic about how you approach the situation as a leader rather than bringing kind of a one size fits all um, that you that you got out of a book or you got out of a course or you got from a mentor or whatever. Um, that's not a bad baseline, but you have to be willing to kind of modulate that style because the system's gonna be a dynamic one and you wanna be responsive to that system. So it seems to me that the takeaway here is that we can still learn from these leaders. We can still read these stories. We can we can learn from them, learn about them. Hopefully, learn the truth and not maybe this the, the the myths that have been sort of formed around these leaders, but maybe learn the real truth behind these leaders, and and learn how to apply them to our specific situations, our specific personality, our specific ecosystem, and uh, the role that we play in that ecosystem, and uh, and the and the challenges that that we all face. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That the, the point is not to say that leaders don't matter. It is actually the opposite. It's to say leaders matter a great deal. It's just that they don't matter for the reasons we typically assume. And whether it's by, you know, in the case of our 13 leaders studying uh, these historical profiles or others, what we can see there is what's really going on uh, with, with uh, any particular leader's track record and why it is that they do or don't uh, become effective and, and, and command a certain level of attention and influence, uh, notoriety and so forth, um, that, that to take a more clear-eyed and objective look of that and then think about what that means for our own approach to leadership. What I like most about this book, Jeff, is that it that it makes leadership accessible to all of us. We don't have to be you know, our own version of George Washington crossing the Potomac in the rowboat, we can be, you know, in, in, in our roles, gosh, just as, as fathers for you and I, Jeff, uh, you know, we don't have to be the, the father leading his kids through Disneyland and, and uh, taking his, his family on an amazing vacation. Sometimes you can just be uh, the dad who's sitting down next to your kid at the, at the dinner table. I'm thinking about myself right now with your son, last night crying, uh, dealing with his homework, dealing with his math homework, and uh, with, with a, a, a dinner table that's a mess full of uh, food and leftovers on the table still. And sometimes that's what great fatherhood looks like. That's what great leadership can look like. It can, it's accessible to all of us. We don't have to hold these, these vision, visions and this formula and this, these attributes and these results. Those are myths in, in so many ways, and, and those don't tell the whole story. So it makes it accessible to all of us. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. We joked around at one point, and we even put this in the book at one point, that it'd be foolish for anyone to try and lead in the way any of our profiled leaders led, whether it was Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill. And in fact, one point, you know, we... Um, we joke that it's not clear that anyone could lead like Churchill and the legacy of Churchill. And it's not even clear that Churchill, Churchill himself led in the legacy of Churchill, uh -huh. right? Sure. That, that it's become more myth than reality. Um, and so nobody should attempt to try and apply those styles themselves. Um, and, and really to go to one of your key themes, Jim, it, what it does is it makes leadership not just more accessible 
to everyone because it's more respectful and mindful of their particular style or approach or requirements. It also creates a lot more space for fallibility, for failure. Yeah. Because we, we, we realize that these expectations are somewhat exaggerated. They're exaggerated for good reason, because we want a better future. We want a better lives for our children, for our communities and, so, and our companies and so forth. All of that's natural. All of that's healthy. But, but asking people to live up to these exaggerated expect, expectations um, is one where we kind of get it wrong. But two, it's where we start to decrease the space rather than increase the space for people to be fallible as all of us tend to be as humans, right? Absolutely. And that's one of, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. And I think that's um, one of the things that resonated with me most. And, and I want to turn that question, if we could, on you, Jeff. Um, you know, this is a, you're, you're a person that we all look up to. I read just, just a part of your bio. Gosh, for the listener, if you really want to learn more about Jeff's bio, I, I read about a third of it. Um, he has held all kind of different positions and continues to do so. And uh, Navy SEAL for 20 years, you've uh, national security advisor, et cetera. Um, can you tell us about a time, Jeff, where, where you failed, where you, you faced an obstacle, you failed, you had to struggle through it, and, and you came out of the other side? Yeah, the, 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 the truth is that, and I appreciate that, Jim, but the truth is that I don't know where to begin because most of what I learned about leadership, I learned by getting it wrong, and I learned through failure. Um, and I, I joke around that I run a leadership institute now, and it's filled with a bunch of amazing people who do nothing but but think about this and read about it and so forth. Um, my real claim to it is I just kept getting it wrong in my life, um, <laughs> and you know learned some some painful lessons. Some of them I've I've gotten better at talking about more openly because it it is hard at first, um, particularly when the stakes are high. The one that was very early for me and very clearly directed at 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 my fallibility as a leader and as a decision maker happened in Iraq in, uh, I think it was 2005. And it was one of these cases where I thought I was doing it right. I thought I was doing what the leader was supposed to do. I thought I was taking care of my people and thinking about it clearly. And instead, uh, what I thought was a decision that would, would take care of people was a decision that actually almost killed two of my own people and put them in a much more hazardous spot, uh, inadvertently, and they hit an improvised explosive device and came very close to losing their lives. And, and, um, thankfully they, they survived only because of some miraculous actions, uh, on, on behalf of, you know, on the, at the, at the hands of their teammates. Um, but, but the root cause of that was traceable back to my decision. And, and in hindsight, it became clear that what was was thought of by me as taking care of them was actually ducking making the hard choice, right? I had I had ducked the the awkward, uncomfortable, unpopular decision that actually would have kept everybody safer under the the guise of doing uh, what was good for my people, and I was kidding myself, and I was putting them at risk. And that's a, that's a common dilemma that we face is, and we frame it up as, well, on the one hand, this is the right thing to do, but on the other hand, this is the right thing to do. So geez, you know, which one is it going to be? And, and that's where leadership really happens is in these gray areas of right versus right dilemmas. And, and there's, there's no clear answer, right? Because if there's a clear answer, a machine can make the decision or a, yeah. or a, or a junior person 
uh, on the team can make the decision. It doesn't need to go to the leader. And that's where leadership really, really um, comes through is, is whether it's having the courage to stand up for what you believe is right, but you know is unpopular. Um, and in, that, in, in the case I gave you, that was certainly the, 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 the model that it fell into. Um, but they often fall into that kind of framework. And that's where I was getting it wrong a lot. And that's where I learned some of those very, very painful lessons. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. What a great story and a, a great lesson for us all is, uh, you know, when you have these situations of a, a right versus right decision uh, and making that unpopular decision is is hard. And um, so I appreciate you sharing that, Jeff. For the listener who is sitting there saying, okay, this all makes sense. Um, I'm going to reframe my view of leadership. Can you recommend an action item, uh, something that the listener listener can do, an action they can take, let's say, in the next 24 to 48 hours to really start moving towards becoming a better leader? Yeah. I, um, you know, and this this gets to the, the practical side of this, which is really what we deal with at our institute um, every day. I, 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 in my personal life, try to practice this thing I've come to call incremental implementation. Um, it, partly because I had at one point a bit of a, of, of a mathematical background. And if you're, if you're into math or you're into finance, you've, you've come into contact with this idea of compounding interest. And it's really a miracle when you, when you look at it or, or when you've benefited from it. And it is to say that, you know, if you, if you put a little bit away into your retirement account every year, right, over, over the course of your lives, you get to retirement, you've actually got um, a lot there saved up. And it, and it really is a miracle because compounding interest is, is much more significant and impactful than people give it credit for or would intuitively think. And if you take that same idea and you apply it to your life, you know, the, the process of, of getting through life and moving these mountains, um, knocking down these obstacles can sometimes feel overwhelming. And you're just like, where do I begin? You know, if I've got this grand goal for myself or you've got this big challenge you have to get through, where to start? And the only real place to start is with that very small incremental first step, right? The only way you're going to move a mountain is one shovel at a time, so you might as well get started. And so it really comes back to the idea of finding that first incremental step. Keep in mind the, the, the mountain or the, the grand goal, but really focus on identifying and not being afraid to take that first step. And then you'll have to provide some some course correction and so forth as you go, of course, because things will change. But, but pulling it all the way back to when you're overwhelmed and you're really looking at that, find, reverse it back to that very first incremental step that you can take and get the process started. And Jeff, what habits do you have do you feel have set you apart? I mean, you've, you've achieved incredible things throughout your career. You've been in lofty positions. You've been given a lot of responsibility. What habits do you have and have you had, do you feel like, throughout your career that have set you apart and helped you achieve success? And maybe it's just that. Maybe it's that uh, the, the, the idea of compounding interest in, in, in continually improving. But uh, something you can give us there? Yeah, the, the one that I've been focusing on, and it's more recent, and this is one I'm still um, trying to be more disciplined with, but I've found it's, it's really effective, particularly as our lives get busier and we're trying to find that balance, so to speak, is to live by a calendar, right? I live by a schedule. And that sounds really mechanical. It sounds, it sounds almost overly engineered or micromanaged, but that's actually the beauty of it. Because not only do you then schedule the things that need to get done, um, which by the way, forces you to kind of prioritize and really be clear about 
what does need to get done and what doesn't because um, it forces you to, to think about that and then actually put it in your calendar. And, and by the way, it, it, it makes you more accountable and better at getting those things done. It also allows you to then live in the white space, which is to say when you're unscheduled, stop worrying about work. Stop checking your email. Be present. Be with your kids. Be with your family. Be in the moment. Be with your friends. You know, so that when you're scheduled, you're scheduled and you know what you're doing and there's a reason for what you're doing and you're going to get it done. And you should get it done because it's a priority. But when you're unscheduled and you're in that white space, relax, <laughs> right? You're in your yeah. white space. It's fine to be doing nothing. It's fine to be among friends. And too many of us, I think, are just getting into these habits where without something to, to allow us to kind of find that back and forth, um, it just feels like we're on all the time. And, and even if your whole goal is to be productive, there is a way in which less is more, right? And, yeah. and finding a way to actually dial it back is going to make you more productive. Or maybe you just <laughs> want the white space. But yeah. I found that to be pretty helpful, and that's something I'm still working on. I love that. It's about living intentionally. And, and if, you, if you're not living intentionally, you're not structuring your days and not planning your time, then you always feel like there's something else you should and could be doing. But if you're, if you're hitting that pause button and actually doing the, the thinking and the prioritizing, like you said, then uh, it allows us to have that white space. And, and for the longtime listener, you know that this falls under the category of productive pause. And, and this idea of uh, every time I ask this question, uh, I've always gotten some form of, of a habit that has is, that is helped someone be successful is not the, the act of doing, it's the act of pausing. And it's a, it's a, I defined it as a short period. Uh, productive pause is defined as a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. And that's exactly what Jeff is talking about here. So Jeff, thank you for that advice. Yeah, that's great. You got it. That, that's really, that's really great. And so can you take a minute and promote yourself a little bit? Tell us where we can find the book, how we can follow you, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the, the website is theleadersbook.com. Um, and you know, the, uh, the, the links you need to, to get to the book are there. We're in this, uh, uh, you know, this journey of trying to redefine not only how we think of leadership, that's of course the, the first step, which, um, we we've started on, but really think about what does it mean at a practical level? And that's what we do here at McChrystal group leadership Institute. Um, like I said, a great team of people that are really passionate about this idea of organizational team and, and leader performance in some pretty cutting edge ways. So that, that of course is all on our website, McChrystal group, um, dot com. And it's just, it's, it's something where we're learning every day and, and, you know, there's, there's no shortage of ways for us to improve in this. We've, we've been at it for thousands of years and most of us are still struggling with it. So it's a pretty exciting thing for the team here to be working on. And yeah, if you're interested, um, take a look at those websites and appreciate you giving us that opportunity, Jim. And for the listener, I'll have the links to everything Jeff mentioned there, as well as his social media and social media for the McChrystal Group. I'll have that uh, all in the action plan at jimharshawjr.com slash action. Jeff, thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule to come on the show. Thanks, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. 